Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back to the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Ken Clark. Ken, how are you? Great, Corey. It's awesome speaking with you and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, when I uh, first developed this podcast or decided I was going to do it, you were like one of the first names that popped in my head. So I'm glad that we were able to get you yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. Obviously, we go back a bit at, uh, at yeah. this point and always love talking shop with you. So doing so uh, more formally for a podcast yes. is, is a perfect format. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Over the years, we probably could have released several podcasts. At but... least just from our phone calls <laughs> or otherwise, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Ken, for the listener, just give us a rundown of your background and your professional history and what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So come from kind of a team sport background. Um, I played uh, football and, and baseball growing up in high school, and then I played Division three uh, football as a running back. And uh, I always joked that I made up for, for being small and weak by being slow to boot. So I was always <laughs> interested in uh, trying to get, you know, faster, stronger, that sort of thing. And um uh, my dad recently told me that uh, that I I, I should uh, you know stop saying that. He's like, we put in a lot of hard work trying to get you faster. And he's right. So no, yeah. I, I fell in love with it uh, by doing the the training um, with my dad. He was my first speed coach, and always trying to trying to get faster to uh, to you know be able to play just college football at any level. Um, I was a uh, a psychology major at Swarthmore College, where I played most of my college football. They didn't even have exercise science, um, but I got into coaching uh, Division three football um, after my playing days at, uh, at a place called Dickinson College in Central PA. They didn't have a strength coach in those days. Uh, the other grad assistant football coach was a guy named Justice Gallick, who's great. He's been with the Villanova University and New York Jets for a while. So Justice and I handled the speed and the strength coaching responsibilities um, back while we were coaching football. And then, you know, my interest in strength and conditioning really took off from there. Uh, after that, I went into the private sector uh, for about five years, um, strength and conditioning, I got my master's degree in kinesiology from uh, Westchester University in suburban Philadelphia, which is where I'm now at as a faculty member. Um, and then, you know, interestingly, like I really didn't see myself at the time doing anything more with it um, academically than, than just kind of the, yeah. the master's degree. But um, I had a great mentor there uh, named uh, Dr. David Stern, who really turned he's now a colleague of mine, friend and colleague. He really turned me on to the research process. And after I did the uh, the, the two years of my master's degree, got really interested in research, went down to Dallas for five years. I was in the, the prestigious uh, Southern Methodist University Locomotive Performance Lab, mentored by Dr. Peter Wayne, who's the lab director there, and Dr. Larry Ryan. And um, after five years there, uh, a faculty job came up back at, at Westchester University, my alma mater, um, to teach biomechanics and motor learning. So I returned uh, to Philadelphia, to Westchester. Uh, I've been back there since 2015. So and this is my seventh year now uh, there at Westchester. And I've always done some coaching along the way. Like um, even when I was at, uh, in Dallas, I coached at, uh, at Jesuit Prep with Jeremy Weeks and Michal Cahill. At Westchester, I've done volunteer coaching, either on the strength and conditioning side of things with uh, basketball, volleyball, um, working as a volunteer sprints coach with the track and field team. Now I'm working with baseball, softball, men's soccer. Um, and with my uh, my friend and colleague throughout that time period, Corey Waltz, who was at 
Haverford College and now University of Pennsylvania working uh, mostly with the lacrosse teams there. So always had my hand in coaching through, throughout that time period. So definitely enjoy the kind of combined experience of teaching, researching and, and coaching. So that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. So. Yeah. And that is something I've always uh, I just thought was really special about you because you are like the a pracademic in the truest sense of the word. Well, I Meaning appreciate like, that. You you and I share a lot of those, I think, common experiences, right? As far as instructing and working with mm-hmm. athletes and everything like mm-hmm. that, for sure. But so. but you but you've got the like the really high level research side of things. Like you said, you were in, in Peter's lab. Um, anyone who's interested in speed has probably seen your little your little clip of team sport athletes versus uh, sprinters and you're standing in the background you're standing in the background with the high speed treadmill um and so like that's but even your so even in your research you're looking at high level sprint athletes and team sport athletes who are fast and we know there's differences there and we might get into those differences today yeah but when when you and i first start to get started to get to know each other you were uh coaching speed and agility for a d3 soccer team right so like you were you were doing track you were doing field sports all levels i think you even uh in dallas were you doing some high school i i was yeah at jesuit prep with a really yeah it was an unbelievable uh school with with jeremy weeks and michal cahill where they had two strength and conditioning coaches for a high school if you can believe that yeah Yeah. all all levels so it's been (laughs) fun to kind of compare across the levels you know i also do um i forgot to mention consulting for usa track and field so yeah literally bring that up yeah fastest humans all the way down yep. to you know d3 uh team sport athletes and high school team sport athletes so there's some right. neat similarities and differences of course across that spectrum yeah so, yeah and it gives you a, a very unique perspective it gives you um you know a way to kind of just evaluate what what's important what's maybe not as important right you know, and obviously um, impacts the recommendations that you give. So today we're going to talk about sprint and speed technique. And maybe surprisingly for people, this is a pretty contentious topic within the world of sports performance. Like you would think, um, you know, lifting technique is really important. Sprint technique must be really important too. Like there must be some technical model that we should aspire to and if you attain that uh you're going to be faster but that's not necessarily the case like there's some controversy surrounding this topic um there's differences in opinion on should team sport athletes try to attain the same sprinting style and technique as sprinters who that's their sport so i guess give us some insight into this why why is this contentious from your opinion? And what are some of the factors that go into this topic? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. It really is. And and um, my own opinions on it have changed over the last decade and even over the last three or four years. You know, I think mm-hmm. when I was primarily working in the lab with track and field athletes, I definitely got kind of, um, I don't want to say tunnel vision because that has a negative connotation, but I got focused on the one kind of track and field model and thinking that okay for top speed sprinting at least you know everyone should attempt to conform to this this kind of you know, upright posture um high knee lift high foot lift like you know, really trying to minimize the excessive backside 
uh, swing of the thigh, like that sort sure. of thing. Um, and, you know, certainly not all sprinters, but most of the good sprinters you know, demonstrate a lot of elements of, of that model. And my my eyes first were opened to it by a um, a person who's a, a friend and, a, and has just a super sharp mind. Sophia Nymphias, Dr. Sophia Nymphias, one time at a at a conference that we were presenting at, she goes, well, Ken, everything you're kind of you know prescribing for team for this technical model is, is the antithesis of what team sport athletes need to do from a change of direction standpoint. So how do you kind of marry those two things up? And it was, you know, it was a question that was said in the, in the purest sense of the word, just trying to promote um, discussion. And it was a great mm-hmm. question from Sophia, as she always is, uh, does. And, and I, I kind of thought about it. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's a it's a great question. I got to give that more thought. And that was back in 2014. We were at this conference out at, out at Altus. And and really from that time moving forward over the last seven, eight, nine years, I've, I've tried to marry up kind of, all right, what are we trying to get our sprinters to do at top speed? Versus what are team sport athletes need to do at top speed versus what are like the game constraints of team sport yeah, that kind of are going to you know, change yeah. how that, <clears throat> how that uh, presents itself in a team sport setting. And, um, you know, I think my thoughts are, are still evolving on that, but, you know, I, I think generally speaking, obviously if we look at like you know, a sprinter and a hundred meter dash, there's going to be certain elements that, that we want to see, um, you know, to, to varying degrees, obviously with, with a certain amount of bandwidth, but that's going to be a, a torso that that's relatively upright. Uh, yes, it's, it's definitely going to, there's going to be some flexion and extension, but for the most part, the posture is going to be upright. Um, the pelvis is going to oscillate in, in, you know, all three dimensions, but we want it to be guided towards a, a more neutral position and, mm-hmm. and try to, you know, reduce excessive anterior tilt. Um, do all sprinters need to get their thighs up to 90 degrees? No. Um, but, you know, do they need a fair amount of, of thigh lift, of knee lift in front of them? Yeah, you need to create space to, you know, uh, to strike the ground, to apply force, to run fast, basically, right? So um, right. to varying degrees, we're going to see that from our, our sprinter technical model. I, I've certainly over the last five years kind of gone away from, hey, there's one composite model that all athletes need to stick to you know, right on that model, every frame. I mean, it just doesn't show up like that in competition. And I think that yeah. I got kind of locked into to viewing it like that. And I mean, look at the world championships, Shelly Fraser Price and Fred Curley, you know, the, the winners in a hundred meter dash. I mean, they just didn't directly stick to that model. Certainly. I think that's a, a model we want to guide our athletes towards, but I think yeah. we have to, I think be flexible with, okay, you know, there's going to be um, bandwidth surrounding that, even yeah. that sprinter model even in our fastest sprinters. Uh, now, sure. With that being said, and, and I'm, I'm speaking mostly on sprinters, I'll get to team sports in a minute. If you watch those sprinters in practice, from my experience with USA Track and Field, they are really pretty close to that model in practice. What happens in a competition scenario, of course, the adrenaline's flowing, the velocities are a little faster. You look at them where there's separation 70, 80 meters into the race, the mechanics start to you know fall off a little bit from that model. Yep. So sometimes mm-hmm. what you see on TV doesn't directly mimic what you see in practice of what of the model they're working towards. So I still think we need sure. to, to guide those sprinters towards that technical model. But mm-hmm. um, but being aware of the fact that not everybody is going to fit one singular kinematic model, even amongst elite sprinters, that there's going to be. Yeah, you know, we exactly. Have to allow for variation. That's that's natural. Um, yeah, people are of different sizes, muscle mass distributions, weights, et cetera. So yeah, different um, anthropometric ratios. Yeah, exactly. Like right. Um, exactly. 
Because so, then the other aspect of this that I know you know because you've you've lived this is just the time aspect. When we're thinking about, um, you know, any team sport person listening to this right now is like, well, you know, I don't have the necessarily the time to like really be very perfect and spend a ton of time on the technique when I'm working with my athletes. I know we'll get yep. to that, but you know, that's just obviously another consideration with all this. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So keep going with, uh, you know, some of the things you're looking for that is kind of a true universal, you know, across athletes. Yeah. So I think, you know, as, as we look across athletes and across top speed, um, you probably the one thing that we want to avoid, and you hate to talk about things in, in negatives, you probably always want to yeah, frame right. it as positive, but, <laughs> but to talk about things from a negative lens is, I, I think that really excessive anterior pelvic tilt and really excessive backside swing of the thigh and backside loop of the foot to the point where it causes the athlete to kind of land out in front of them. You know, that's mm-hmm. going to be a bad thing, perhaps not even just from a, a sprinting speed standpoint, but certainly from a soft tissue injury standpoint. So I think the non-negotiables, non-negotiables, it's kind of a hot phrase at, at this time, but your lumbopelvic control, uh, whether you're a sprinter or a team sport athlete, that might not manifest itself identically when you're looking at a sprinter at top speed versus a, a team sport athlete. But, you know, you don't want to see excessive anterior tilt, excessive backside swing, the foot landing, you know, too far out in front with that team sport athlete. Those are things that, you know, probably are not going to be good for top speed and are probably going to, you know, put that team sport athlete at an increased risk of, of injury, you know, certainly from a mechanism standpoint. That would the evidence would point to that. So, you know, I think that the primary thing from a team sport athlete, from a return on investment standpoint, would say, "Hey, let's let's put enough work into the top speed mechanics that we can get some postural and lumbopelvic control changes to help them, you know, run yeah. as fast as they normally would, or faster, but in a safer manner." Um, and, and then we'll, we can talk about the question of, of transfer, like transfer to a game situation for team sport athletes in a minute, because um, I think that's also a really interesting question as well. But, but my thought is as follows. If we can get them to run better and safer, even in practice, like even if you just took the devil's advocate approach that, hey, none of this is going to transfer to a game for a team sport athlete, I would still say there's a benefit to it. If I can get them running faster and safer in practice only, like then we're chasing the stimulus. That's still a great stimulus. You know, we're still going to get them to chase a, a faster top speed in a safer manner. That's worth it to me. So to me, I think even if you took the devil's advocate approach to, hey, none of this technique work we're going to do with these team sport athletes will transfer. I would still say it's, it's worth doing it. And I think yeah. if you, yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if in effect, that's raising their ceiling, right? If right. you can. Right. Um, raise the ceiling of their output while it might not manifest itself in that way in competition. Um, you know, it's the same reason we lift weights. Um, right. Right. We are increasing an athlete's ability to produce force, right? Raising the ceiling with very nonspecific ways with right. a squat or a split squat, squat or a bench right. press or anything like that. Super nonspecific, but we're still uh, doing it for the reason of increasing the ceiling of force production um and so like i guess when you think about it why wouldn't we do the same with sprinting so i think we'll talk about time saving strategies later so it's just an interesting kind of if you think about it in that way it's actually way more specific than the weight room right right exactly i'd say well 
Yeah, I mean, you know, back squat or a deadlift doesn't show up on the field of play either. But you know, I don't think there's much to. Well, I guess there is debate, but uh, yeah. training in general. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> strength training in general. I don't think there's much yeah. debate that that you know has at least an indirect transfer as far as mm-hmm. raising physical capacities in the ceiling. So, um, you know, as it relates to um, kind of what we're looking for from a specific technical model from team sport athletes, you know. Again, this is a, actually an area of, of current research. Our a research group at Westchester is doing a deep dive into, you know, what the mechanics of um, not just being a fast track athlete look like. That's pretty well known, you know, but yeah. looking at mm-hmm. fast track athletes, intercollegiate athletes, uh, you know, Division One sprinters and Division Two sprinters versus Division One and Two team sport athletes. And like, actually, like, what are some technical similarities of fast team sport athletes? Like, what does that look like? Because yeah. I don't think that that's well as well established you joked about that video that treadmill video we all know what bad mechanics look like right (laughs) Right. i mean anyone could pick that out of a lineup and be like well that guy on the right side of the of the treadmill runs poorly from a technical standpoint but what's like the intermediate ground like what mechanics are good enough from a team sport athlete to be you know both safe and break nine meters a second um there's a great question that came up on social media the other day i think brendan thompson raised it which is like what's fast Of course, mm-hmm. like everything else, the answer is all depends. But I'd say yeah. hey, for a uh, you know, track and field athlete, male track and field athlete, we're probably looking 10, 10 and a half meters a second, 22, 23 miles an hour. For a team sport athlete, you know, a skilled guy, or, you know, in, the, in, in whatever sport you're looking at, to me, a one flat and a fly 10 yard. So like nine, 9.1 meters a second, 20 miles an hour. That's fast. That's not maybe not very fast, but that's fast. So like yeah, what, the, elite, what the mechanics of being fast for team sport athletes, to me, that's a super interesting question because, you know, as much as I love track and field, maybe maybe that question has like a broader application because the majority of sports performance coaches don't work with only track and field. They no. work with team sport yes. athletes, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Establishing that for men and women and to say like, hey, what technique is good enough to yeah. be safe and fast? Yeah as a team sport athlete is, is like a super interesting question. So that's something we're, yeah. we're working on right now. And, and, you know, it's super relevant now for you, especially because you're working with lacrosse. Right. That's another aspect in sports that often gets brought up is they're holding a ball or they've yep. got equipment on or they're holding yep. a stick or something like that. So, I mean, what have you, what have you found so far? Like, is there yeah, anything you so can share? Yeah, so question. We'll have to do another podcast in a year when, uh, when our, our research is completed. So, um, yeah, we, we did testing, uh, in the fall. We did our initial data collection in the fall. We have another data collection, uh, this spring and the data won't fully be analyzed until kind of summertime. So I don't have any answers for you yet, but I think, you know, just kind of some preliminary speculation would be yeah, that right. fast team sport athletes, generally the, the faster team sport athletes look more like your traditional track and field model at top speed. We're talking not in a game situation. We're talking in a, in a yeah. testing situation, right? Yeah, and yeah, and slower yeah. team sport athletes are, are further from that track and field model with the big caveat, with the big you know caution that there seems to be a lot of variability in what those, those fast top, uh, team sport athletes look like. Like I've had, hmm. I've seen team sport athletes at you know, 9.5 meters per second where it's like, wow, you run like a sprinter. And then there's athletes at 9.5 meters per second. Like, wow, your mechanics really don't look that pretty, you know, but, but both guys are running at the same speed. So that I think, you know, overall, if I had to speculate right now, we're going to see that generally speaking, the faster team sport athletes have kind of a more 
track and field type of mechanic at top speed, but that there's going to be a lot of bandwidth, a lot of, you know, a wide standard mm-hmm. deviation around yeah. that. Around and, that. And the question that we have to, and you are trying to answer is how, how big is that bandwidth? How, right. how, how big much is that bandwidth? We, how, how should we let that bandwidth expand? Um, so before, cause I want to touch on acceleration mechanics briefly before we get into yeah. the strategies for today, I do want to ask a question about the athlete that seemingly had poor technique, but was still fast. So we see this so sneaking much, um, yeah. where it's like, all right, I want to help you. I think I see ways that you can get better, but the results don't lie. Like you're right. fast. So yep. from a buy-in standpoint, sometimes it's tough to go to the athlete and say, Hey, change this thing because yep. I think you get faster. Uh, and even though sometimes, and let me know if you've experienced this, sometimes that cha- trying to change them momentarily makes them, slower, them slower because they're getting yeah, used yeah, to it. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great question. Another great uh, potential guest for you in the future would be a, a coach named Daniel Bach from uh, down in uh, Austin, Texas, who does a great job with he's a uh, speed science or jump science on Instagram. And, and he and oh, I sure. uh, talk a lot. He's extremely knowledgeable about this these sort of things. He's in the private sector. And, you know, I think um, my thoughts have evolved to the point where, as you just said, taking an athlete who's, who's fast, but who doesn't run with kind of like classically good mechanics, front side mechanics, whatever, and then making a change may not make them faster. And in the short term may actually make them slower. So then the question comes into play is like, well, why, why even do that then? So I've actually totally morphed my marketing ploy to the athlete, which has a bad connotation, but you go, which is to say, Hey, this may not make you, you faster, but this is a likely safer way to run as fast, basically to say, okay, mm. let's try to cha- make this change to reduce a risk of injury, of, you know, hamstring strain or a hip flexor strain or whatever, even though yeah. your top speed may stay essentially, you know, the same. Um, even if we, if we make these changes and, uh, Daniel, if you ever talked to him, has some really interesting thoughts on this as well. You know, to me, it it comes down to the fact that changing an athlete's mechanics, um, you know, it may make them faster, but it may not. But I think, you know, in a worst case scenario, it allows them to run as fast with a decreased risk of of soft tissue injury, you know, during during training. Um, one other a really interesting person great researcher and practitioner that I love to, to speak with is Jordan, uh, Jordan Meneguccia, who does a lot of work with, with um, hamstrings and, and uh, European football players. And I think okay. you would say that we need to both evaluate the hardware and the software, like any technical mm. work, being <laughs> kind of motor program or software mm. work, but that, you know, one, one thing that can be addressed off the track, off the pitch is the hardware work, you know, uh, sure. doing, um, soft tissue work, you know, work in a physical therapy clinic, et cetera. And that that hardware work, that that's going to transfer to the pitch or the field regardless. And so they're right. doing both. I know that Jordan, uh, Jordan's multi, multi-modal approaches really try yeah. to address both. So I think that's one other thing. Yeah. Um, that I can't say I do a lot of, right. I'm not a physical therapist or an athletic trainer, but I think that's, that's one thing for the listener here to be aware of, which, um, really knowledgeable people will also often say like Jordan, that you need to be doing, you know, addressing both the hardware and the software, um, potentially addressing the software, i.e. the technique, the motor program aspect is not enough if the athlete doesn't have, you know, the yeah. hardware to execute it. Um, so that's, yes. that's one other aspect 
uh, just yeah. that's kind of global to acceleration yeah, with top there, speed technique. The, there's no doubt that it's a multifaceted right. issue because you know, essentially what we'd have to figure out is what's the, what's the primary constraint on the athlete. So is the constraint individual or physical? And then that, if we address that, well, now they've got new movement solutions that they have access to. And same with the modal learning aspect or the skill acquisition aspect. And and I'll say just like for coaches, you know, if you do see, just to, you know, remember if you see this kind of uh, short term, you know, decrease in speed or all of a sudden things look a little wobbly, like they're just like learning. Well, they are. They're learning a new skill if you try 100%, to hundred percent. Yeah. So don't freak out. It actually should be expected, just like anyone learning a new skill. If you're trying to reteach or someone's trying to relearn how to do something, especially if it's something they've done for a long time, you got to give that athlete time to learn a new technique or new, yeah, learn no, a new skill. Yeah, no, 100%. So it's just a great expect point. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was coaching track at Westchester, we were working with the sprinters on something technical. Um, you know, head, head coach Jason Kilgore would often say, well, you know, it doesn't need to be perfect. I just need you to do something different than what you always do, you know, just to push that <laughs> needle a little bit. And we'd always mm-hmm. remind them you know, beforehand, like, this isn't necessarily going to feel good, right? If you're doing something yeah. different, well, it's, yeah. you know, like you, exactly like you just said, it, it may not you know, feel good. Uh, yeah. One, one it, thing, kind of before we move on, I'd be, Remiss, yep. if I didn't mention, you know, obviously I have a good working relationship with uh, Stu McMillan and Andreas Bame and all, all the people at, at Altus, uh, Dan and Kevin, et cetera. And, and I just, you know, I love Stu's catchphrase that everybody knows, which is essentially you have to learn the, the rules of sprinting mechanics before the constraints of the game, you know, break them. I, I do think that those are really good words to live by when working with team sport athletes. I, I think it's important to know that the team sport athletes aren't necessarily going to look like sprinters, you know, in practice, they're, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of times not going to look like sprinters in a, in a game situation, but yeah. kind of continuing at least to, to push that needle towards, you know, that sprinter model is important. And, and I guess our current research question is trying to figure out exactly, you know, what does that needle look mm-hmm. like? Where is that needle when it's fast yeah. for team sport athletes? But I, I think that is a, <clears throat> that's a commonly used phrase from Stu. And I, I think it's a really a good one um, to come back to with this, this sprinter versus, uh, you know, kind of team sport model. Yeah, discussion. 100%. So before we dive into strategies to teach the rules, <laughs> let's briefly touch on uh, tenants of acceleration just to give yeah. the listener something that they can call back on when we're talking about those. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So I think you can Talk about, for starters, where the foot should, should strike the ground in the first couple of steps. So the foot should always aim to strike uh, underneath the hips of the center of mass or ultimately even behind the center of mass. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't actually happen past the first step or two. You know, even an Olympic sprinter, the foot is going to strike out in front of the hips, uh, step three and beyond. But it's a great coaching point. Just say, hey, strike underneath you, strike behind you, basically. You're going to want to have the athlete avoid reaching out in front of them during acceleration. So however you want to frame that from a coaching cue standpoint, many roads lead to Rome. But the bottom line is, you know, biomechanically, the athlete should be aiming to to strike back or or push back underneath them. Or alternatively, if you wanted to say, well, trunk and, and center mass needs to be out in front of the foot, that works yeah. as well. But but that mm-hmm. certainly is is one kind of um, biomechanical rock. Um some of the research by J.B. Moran and, and his colleagues and Colin Moran and others, you know, suggests that um, ironically that that 
you know, of course, we don't want more braking impulse, but then it's really all about the, the propulsive impulse. So like how much mm. gas pedal during the latter portion of the stance phase is really what determines net change in velocity and differential and acceleration between, you know, either elites and sub elites or elites and mm. sport, et cetera. So um, really working on how much propulsive impulse we can get. And, and that comes down to like not rushing our ground contacts. You ever you know, popular statement, mm. be quick, but don't hurry, so to speak. So <laughs> yeah. we do, do need to, you know, have full pushes. Um, and I'm not saying like triple extent or otherwise, but, you know, I think yeah. sometimes team sport athletes have a tendency to, to rush to have a super high frequency at the at the risk of completing pushes. So, you know, applying a lot of propulsive impulse, completing pushes. Um, and then, you know, a gradual rise in body angles, to put it quite globally. So that can sure. be trunk angle, that can be shin angle. That's going to definitely differ. You know, if you're yeah. running a 40-yard dash, a 60-meter dash, a 100-meter dash. If you're a soccer player chasing down a ball that's 10 yards away, you know. But the bottom line is you don't want to pop up right away, right? So there needs to yeah. be some gradual progression of body angle. So I think that's... That's probably like the the major three, if I had to you know, think of it right off the, the top of my head, kind of strike back, slide, you try to, you know, complete the pushes. There's some limb mechanics that we'll get into at top speed as well. You know, I think this scissoring of the thighs and having kind of big flexion extension patterns throughout the thighs mm -hmm. is universal between both acceleration and top speeds. That certainly applies as well. But if I'm trying to simplify it here, yeah. um, you know, this, this kind of gradual rise in, in body mm -hmm. angles. And then I think I would also mention that even some of the same things you mentioned with top speed are yeah. uh, going to hold true with acceleration. Uh, we're just tipped it. over. Yeah, <laughs> no, a, a lot of it. And, and you know, I yeah. think um, genius is always being able to take complicated matters and explain them simply, right? And so mm. I think the more parallels we can draw between top speed and acceleration or vice versa, the, the better from a coaching communication standpoint. And I, you know, I think there are really so many just through that lens mm. to, a, to a certain extent, you know, and I guess one other thing I should add uh, that does apply to both places, you know, I said, okay, striking underneath you on an acceleration. This is a different podcast for a different day. For, for a long period of time, I've used cool. the term stiff ground contact yeah. and you know, I think for a number of reasons, I, I'm reconsidering my use of that word. I, I think certainly at top speed, it still holds true. But, you know, whether or not there's a better word for that when dealing with athletes yeah. and to, to describe the foot anchoring position and some of the movement over the top of that foot, whether or not the word stiff is, is truly the best word to communicate that concept for both acceleration sure. and top speed, you know, I'm trying to reevaluate my own kind of thought process that may yeah. not be the best word but but what you don't want is mushy i don't know if the right <laughs> word is stiff but yeah. the wrong concept is, is mushy you don't want yeah. to hit on the ball of the foot and collapse into the, into the ground in, in either phase that's for sure yeah i think there's definitely some reevaluating of some of those uh i would say classic cues I think, right correct me if i'm wrong but another one that's kind of getting reevaluated is like strike the ground like kind of this very aggressive um striking of the ground when you're doing things like marches or skips and the, the yeah. goal of it is, yeah. is good right because we're trying to put force into the ground which Try, we know is right, a right you know one factor. thing even as i do like marches or yeah skips with my athletes you know just as a you know as a part of a very general warm-up is mm -hmm. yeah um 
communicating the concept that, hey, we are applying force, but I want you to pop off the ground. Mm. You know, I would never say the word stomp, not stomp through the ground, sure. right? Like we're not lashing in. It's about, you know, reactive is a good word I've thought about mm. or active. And I'm stealing that from probably Jonas and Ryan Grubbs and others, you know, as far as what that, that foot strike should be like, um, you know, it is forceful, but whether or not it's, you know, yeah, that's yeah, very, yeah, that's very, yeah. yeah, very like kind of hyper intentional right, way of doing right. it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's get into then strategies that coaches can do to yeah. encourage and attain hopefully some of the things that we've been talking about. And, sure. Um, you know, I think where we're going to go with this is going to tend towards things that will naturally allow these to occur without explicit um hey do this do that by right. you know these are really things i think that from a coaching standpoint um tend to help things occur a little more naturally yeah, like a little a more strength-based approach you could say yeah right? We're talking yeah about that, that encourage um, the quote-unquote correct things to happen let's go ahead and start with top speed because that's where we started with the technique yeah, so, absolutely. And it's funny, even though, of course, in a race, you know, start the acceleration <laughs> top speed oftentimes. Well, it's just because that's kind of where my research is focused more or not. I haven't started top speed and then work backwards, but either either way, I think it's a, it's effective. So, yeah, let, mm. let's start at top speed. So um, I've already given my my friend and colleague, Corey Waltz, a shout out, but I want to want to do it again here. So right now, most of the top speed work I'm doing to help out uh, Corey. He's the director mm -hmm. of sports performance at University of Pennsylvania. And he specifically works with the men's lacrosse team is a, a top 10 national division one team for lax and their head coach, their head uh, lacrosse coach, a guy named Mike Murphy was incredible. He's got this very speed first type approach to the training, which, you know, from a, from a head team sport coach to be focused that way is just amazing. So speed is a priority with everything that that team does, which is just a great, great environment to be a part of. So what, what Corey has set up and what Mike has scheduled into the practices, even even in season, um, is this, uh, you know, I won't give away the entire plan, but basically a couple of strategies that come up are, you know, using wickets certain times a year and then also doing some fly runs, like some speed golf, and then doing various types of, of technique work while running it at fast speed. So I want to specifically talk about the wickets and then kind of the fly yeah. golf. Now, of course, both of those are concepts that Corey and I have borrowed slash stolen slash adapted from other people. We invented neither of those. You know, our, our wickets are similar to Vince Anderson or Ron Griggs, for those of, the, uh, those of you who are familiar with um, Vince's wickets. But we did create our new system for, specifically for Penn and for Penn lacrosse. Corey and I, um, two years ago, he basically said, okay, well, Ken, do you think wickets are good for team sport athletes? I said, I think yeah. they can be if they're mm -hmm. done correctly. I think if they're yeah. done wrong, then like anything else, they're, they're ineffective. I was like, <laughs> yeah, sure. but he's like, do you think we could design a system to do it with 50 athletes at one time? I was like, well, let's put our heads to it. So basically we did, we designed a system where he said, if we know an athlete's height uh, and therefore can approximate their leg length, and we know their top speed fly time, which Corey tests with Brower lasers, you know, once every three weeks or so, that we could set up a wicket lane for what their stride length is going to be at top speed and their acceleration pattern. And so essentially, we know the height and the top speed of every guy on the team. So when mm -hmm. they do wickets, they just set up about six different lanes and the okay. athletes are assigned to a wicket lane. So it's not like a lot of guess and check. Yeah. Um, we've done, Corey and I have done two NSCA conference presentations on this. So like, it's no secret. Okay. I mean, like, 
email out our wicket lanes to anyone who wants. So in concept, it's similar to Vince's wickets, but you know, I think the advantage of what we've done here is to say, okay, if you've got a big team, how do you yep. implement this with like 50 athletes at one time? If you don't have the time to video analyze them and get their exact drive, <laughs> right? Which for yep. every university coach out there is the case, right? Maybe a, a track and field coach, you know exactly what your athlete's drive length are. But so um, anyways, this has worked great. Corey uh, Waltz has perfected this over the course of the last year and a half. And even to the point where he's just got ropes that have wicket lanes and the athletes all set themselves up before oh, practice awesome. and all the mini hurdles. So the setup takes about three minutes. The athletes hit three or four reps through the wicket. Sometimes we time them with Brower Gates. Sometimes we don't. Um, mm-hmm. And then the athletes clean it all up. And all of that gets executed, you know, probably within like 15 minutes as part of like a station rotation at the beginning of a lacrosse practice. So it's a super effective way to get high-speed dosage. Sometimes that's done once a week. Sometimes that's done once every couple weeks. Um, sure. Again, I don't want to give away all like the so if- interest, but. Yeah, if someone's unfamiliar, because I, I don't think we've quite discussed this yet, but what is the benefit of wickets? Like what? Yeah, sorry, what, what kind of things are we going for? Yeah. yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely. So, um, wickets are just you know uh, mini hurdles, the the six inch mini hurdles. You can do them, you know, hurdle up so that the, the implement is truly six inches high. Some people do them turned down. You can do them with mini cones. The bottom line is it's an external constraint that the athlete has to to step over right it's something in the environment on the ground mm-hmm. that the athlete has to step over and it encourages a more upright posture less backside thigh swing hopefully more neutral pelvic tilt overall and yep. you know when it's done right the athlete is striking the ground relatively more underneath the center of mass uh it's worth stating that at top speed, you can't actually strike underneath your hips, right? But more underneath your center of mass. Um, Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, like wickets done wrong is is not a great thing. So it needs to be executed correctly with the wickets at the right spacing for that athlete and their top speed and their stride length. But when it's done correctly, Mm -hmm. I think it encourages, you know, really um, a good stimulus because the athletes are at, you know, quite a high percentage of their top speed with good posture you know, with good pelvic position, with good uh, ground contact mechanics. So, okay. um, you know, and what we found both with some of the wicket work we've done at, at Westchester with our track and field athletes a few years ago and with, with the Penn athletes is that the athletes, you know, can hit a, it, when it's done right, can hit a very high percentage of top speed, mm. you know, mm-hmm. definitely over 90%, if not faster. At Westchester, we saw 95% and above with athletes who wow. really coached up it. Because yeah. so that's a, that's a good stimulus, you yeah. know, but all while almost ensuring that they're running with pretty good mechanics. So um, how, how long are the lanes? Yeah, so it can really vary depending on your goal. So, you know, we'll progress them out over the course of a, a training cycle. But, you know, you can start with as few as, you know, I think like 16 wickets, which brings you out to somewhere around 25 to 30 yards. And then uh, we extend okay. them all the way out to, you know, close to 40 yards, 20 um, some odd steps. So. But yeah. I wouldn't necessarily use that at all times of year. So, for sure. Yeah. For sure. That's really interesting that they get that close to their top speed because there's a learning curve with Yeah, wickets, I, I, I should talk about that real quick. So this is a constraints-based approach, right? But I used to think, you know, this is kind of when I was really getting into motor learning as well. Like, 
I first learned about wickets probably a decade ago. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, just roll them out there and let them sprint and away <laughs> you go. And, you know, everything cleans up in a second. Hey. No, I mean, uh, as you know, and as anyone who's done wickets knows, like, you still got to coach the hell out of that drill. But mm. interestingly, interestingly, what I found is the part you have to coach the most is the acceleration part of it. Because mm. if the athletes view it as a top speed form drill and yeah. they don't accelerate aggressively, they never build enough momentum throughout the course of the sprint. And then they, then at top speed, they have to end up reaching and overstriding. Yeah, because then you're pretty. And the, the length between hurdles is off. Really. Right. And then the yeah, length between yeah, yeah. hurdles is off. But actually, the, the area that needs the most coaching is just to emphasize, like, this is an all-out acceleration, even if you're mm. going from a, a two-point stance, which almost always you are with the way it gets put. Hey, you know, foot on a gas pedal from the start. Yeah. And then let the rest take care of itself from kind of from a constraints based approach. That's just my own experience, you know, implementing it with kind of division two track and field athletes and and you know, division one and, and two and three team sport athletes. So gotcha. Let's talk about speed golf. Speed Is that what? Yeah. So again, uh, I, mm-hmm. I I should give credit where credit's due. I forget exactly the person I uh, stole that term from. Uh, yeah. I definitely did not invent it. It's a great term. And uh, the whole kind of point is, you know, with team sport athletes in particular, although with some track and field athletes, you know, you you get really fast times, sometimes even PR, uh, mm. PRs, when you're not actually aiming to go for PRs, when you're asking the athlete to run super fast, but not their PR fastest. Like, like so max, the max, way yeah. to explain it is like if an athlete had a, a fly 10 PR of one flat, then you would ask that 1.00, you would ask that athlete to do, you know, reps where they're aiming to to get it somewhere between 1.05 and 1.10. Like that's their golf hole, so to speak. You're asking mm. to put, a bit, put it in a hole, so to speak. And and so if you get them in that range, you know that they're sprinting at somewhere between 90 and 95%. You know, a lot of times we'll, we'll um, like if we did three reps, for example, the first yep. rep would say, hey, if your PR is one flat, I want you to hit 1.1, right? So you're asking for like 90%. Athletes will get better at that over time, yeah. right? So like at first they may not be able to gain. Yeah, especially it's kind of like an RPE thing, right? Like right, an RPE it's essentially thing, like, like an RPE uh, for you, a speed, you gotta, right? So Yeah, you got to fill that out. Yeah. Right. Team sport athletes, like the first time they do that may be way off, but over a number yeah. of sessions or even within a session, they'll be able to figure that out. Um, and then like maybe the next rep, you're like, okay, I want you know, the next rep at you know, 105. So essentially what you're asking them for is 95%. Me being a numbers guy, I used to say to my athletes like, okay, I want this at 95%. And some athletes can internalize that and know what you mean. And other athletes are just like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> right. They're just like, you want me to no. go all out or not? So this yeah. gives like a a more concrete way of communicating to them, like, you know, especially if you're giving them feedback, not all the results yeah. to, to put on a motor learning hats, right? Yeah. Um, like, okay, well, I want this fast, but it's, just, it's definitely not all out. And that the really interesting thing is, and, and I've only implemented this over the last year or so, first of all, you will get some really fast times. Occasionally, guys will set PRs. That's definitely not the goal. The goal is, sure. you know, fast running. But what always comes out or almost always comes out is much more fluid, smoother mechanics, yeah. especially from your team sport athlete. 
you know, anyone who's coached team sport athletes knows that, you know, more than half the guys who tell them to run a, a, an all out PR, it looks like this. They just yeah, try to strain in their face and the, yeah, it's all clean and, yeah. you know, risk of injuries higher and everything else. But if you just say, hey, your speed golf, I want 105. If your PR is one flat and I want it to be fluid, that's when you really start to get what I would consider to be qualitatively better top speed mechanics to emerge at a pace that's a, still a really good stimulus. So to me, that's a real win-win. I do think you need to run all out sometimes, you know, but I think that's a great one to work in there in a cycle. Yeah, that's that's super interesting because the more and more sometimes I think about this, I I draw parallels to what strength and conditioning coaches are so familiar with in the weight room. Sure. So like if we're lifting whatever lift you want to think about at 85%, that's heavy, but that's not like max near even close maximum. Someone can look perfect under a bar at 85 and then you right. go to 98% and it doesn't look perfect at right, all, right, but it's right. pretty close to maximal. Or if they are going for a max lift, it's not uncommon for technique to break down. And sometimes strength gains can stall because of that. Sure. So now what do we need to do? We maybe need to get more time under the bar at 90%, 92% where it's yep. not maximal, maximal, but it's just heavy enough that they gain the skill of displaying the technique under that load and you know this sounds like the same thing with sprinting yeah i i really think it is you know one other interesting topic which would be a whole podcast for another day is drills (laughs) and their transfer which is you know probably another thing i constantly think about i'm always trying to evolve my viewpoint on but you know i think with sprinting and it's the analogy to the weight room is the same although i think sprinting at 80 percent you know Perhaps the question would come up like, well, is that fast enough where it mimics the coordination patterns of sure? I I think the answer is probably no. But I think Mm -hmm. your analogy to the weight room is the same in that, well, sprinting at 90 to 95 percent, the coordination patterns are probably similar enough. But it's dialed down from top speed enough where you can get some of the fluidity, the smoothness and work, you know, make sure that the mechanics are clean, for lack of a better word, while still getting a really good stimulus um Corey waltz and i were talking about this the other day you know when we were looking we were just discussing like fly tens and speed golf and everything else i was like well if you went in the weight room and you did three reps at 95 percent one rm on the squat <laughs> or deadlift like that's a good stimulus mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. if you do three reps at 105 and your pr is one flat and a fly 10 that's that's yeah. still a really good stimulus even if it's not a one rep max so to speak so or a pr yeah. so um so I, I love those two, you know, and, and I think kind of in, in combination, there's one other thing I, I'll only briefly talk about because I know we're running out of time. We still got to get to acceleration, but yep. the technical flies or technical buildups, I, I also do a fair amount with team sport athlete. It's, you know, to be honest, it's kind of a combination of the two. Meaning yeah, that a really. lot of times I'll give them a, you know, a sub-maximal goal, like, okay, I want this at 90% or like a 1.1 fly 10 if you're a one flat PR guy but I want your technique focus for this rep to be on ground contact or posture Mm -hmm. or, you know, front side recovery or something, you know, acknowledging that anybody can really only focus on one thing. If that while running at high speed, because the limbs are are just moving so quick and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. I found that to be pretty effective in particular with team sport athletes when trying to clean up some, some gross, you know, gross level changes, that sort of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And technical buildups are so easy to implement at they the are end easy of a warm up. Right. So like it's almost a no brainer that 
I mean, you've got to get your athletes ready to run no matter what. So you right. might as well do it. I mean, it's almost as part of a graduated warm up, <laughs> yeah. right? Like the last yeah. thing you do before you run mm-hmm. fast. But yeah, those are, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention those. Those are a good one that are, as you said, easy to implement. So. Sure. Okay. Let's give two for acceleration then as we wrap up. Yeah. So acceleration and, you know, there's a lot of other great resources out there for resisted acceleration, you know, from, from JB to uh, Matt Cross and all those, the, all those guys in that group to um, John Cronin and Michal Cahill. So I definitely want to direct the listener to other people who've done a lot of the research on resisted sprint training. I've been lucky enough to be part of just a, a small part of that with Michal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I want to talk about not the development of specific strength and, and power, which sometimes is the, the focus of, of that, right? And, it, and I think that's all is true and good. But I actually want to talk about just the, the technical aspect of that, which um, you know, noticed uh, during my time working with the track and field team at Westchester and, mm-hmm. and um, head coach Jason Kilgore, who's a friend and colleague, did a great job of this. And what we always commented on was when we did relatively heavier sprints, uh, resisted acceleration sprints with our athletes and against division two track and field teams. So the, you know, the, the sprinters are, you know, it's, it's better than high school, but it's not professional, <laughs> right? The athletes still have a lot of room to work technically. But we noticed with the, the resisted sprints was a really good benefit from just, you know, how it slowed things down, of course, how it, you know, uh, encouraged a better whole body postures, how it, you know, kind of allowed the athletes to focus on on pushing back, uh, applying force down and back, right? Because they they had to overcome the resistance of the sled. And so, I mean, it's to be honest, it's kind of Captain Obvious, but the light bulb went off for me. And I was just like, you know, I think we're getting as much technical benefit as anything yeah, else. 100%. I mean, even if there was no specific strength benefit, I would do probably, you know, implement these, at least for a certain part of the training cycle, just to encourage a good technique. And then you know, the one other thing I always uh, like to point out is like, okay, well, you have the, especially if you do like a waist strap, um, like the straps come down and back behind the athlete. So it's just kind of one interesting cue to be like, well, obviously there's going to be rotational motion of the limbs, but you don't want that recovery so, so long and loopy backside that your heels yeah. are clipping the straps behind you. That never will mm. really happen, but it's a good kind of visual yeah. feel as far as yeah. how the limbs should strike, rotate and recover. So I think there's a really nice technical element to resisted sprints for acceleration in addition to kind of the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the specific strength, which is you know, a generic term, but specific yep. force application that, that yeah. comes along with that. So yeah. that was one thing. And then, you know, another, um, another kind okay, of, complex, before we get to the, Oh yeah. Yeah. Before we get to the next one, two questions yeah. or just a comment and a question. I'll, I will co- corroborate what you said with this because if we're like really trying to get athletes to finish the push, like you mentioned earlier. Right. Um, I mean, there's just no better way to feel that than, a, than yeah. to get resisted. I mean, again, it's like, is it a duh moment? But classically, that's not how resisted accelerations have been have been viewed as a technical right. uh, way. Are we to increase the technical uh, efficiency? And then the question is, in general, how heavy are we talking here? Yeah. So, uh <laughs> I'll give you the ever popular <laughs> sitting on the fence. It depends answer. So with my sprinters, we never went that heavy, not upwards of the, you know, kind of 50% velocity decrement, that sort of thing that, you know, some of the literature has, has indicated, um, not because I don't believe in that per se, but just because mm. uh, we didn't do it for a long enough time when I was at Westchester track and field to, to progress to that. So, I think like in a longer, you know, 
you have more of a training block that you're de- dedicating to it, then you can go heavier. Um, with my team sport athletes, where I was doing that for like an entire summer, yep. then mm-hmm. I would get upwards of like for a 200, 220 pound linebacker. Yeah, well over 100 pounds on the sled. So getting yep. upwards of 50, 60 percent body weight never quite got to like the 80 percent body weight that you know, perhaps leads to like, a, you know, if we're talking velocity decrement, but getting to some pretty big velocity decrements, 30, 40 yeah. percent uh, VDEC for team sport athletes never quite that much with with track and field but yeah um, yeah because yeah again just like wickets there's a there's a there's learning a curve and there's also yeah, just a, a physical know, lead-in process there's a physical this. lead-in part yeah and i, I think like the sprinters yeah. we were working with in westchester needed as much the technical development and, and perhaps mm-hmm. you know like some of the freshmen and sophomores weren't quite weren't quite ready to dive in yeah. to that heavier stuff on the other hand you know i had football linebackers that you know, especially with a little bit of a build-in time, could could handle that load and could handle it well uh, by midsummer. So, okay, how about your last acceleration uh, strategy? Yeah. So again, I want to give shout out to my friend and colleague Jason Kilgore here. This is just something that we collectively did when he was the head coach with our speed and power athletes. We did this typically in in September and beginning part of October uh, for our you know, kind of our fall off season. Um, it's a complex, yeah, it's pretty well known, but I think it just, it bears repeating. So we did kind of a circuit with hill sprints, like hill 20 yard accelerations and med ball Mm -hmm. throw starts, and then just straight flat starts. And we would just do, uh, circuits of that all full recovery, nothing more than 20 yards for any of those three. But I think just kind of talking about the why of those is important. So, um, we had a a hill and and some people have seen some PowerPoint presentations I've done where I have videos of this. This is where I take my scientist hat off, my researcher hat off. And uh, when people ask, well, how steep or what was the grade or the incline? I'm like, I don't know. It was the hill that we had. It went down from our locker room to our football field and track. So that's what we used. But it it ended up just being perfect. It just worked. Um, And we would do, you know, 20, really 20 meter accelerations there. You know, the, the benefits, you know, just qualitatively are similar to a sled in that, forces the athlete to complete the push. You turn your limbs over rapidly, but you don't apply force. You're not going to get anywhere. Um, Emphasize is kind of similar. I think concentric actions for those first couple of steps as you, as you build momentum. Um, So, so love that. There definitely is some research that kind of supports that some recent research. um, And I'm blanking on the, uh, the names of the authors, but from a coordination standpoint, I think that supports that, that incline running and accelerative running are, are pretty similar. Think you know most coaches who've done hill sprints would just qualitatively support that as well, right? So, so hill yeah. sprints, you know, the med ball launch into a sprint is good. Just I think for what it emphasizes with the the you know, the step zero and step one, just really getting athletes to apply force from both feet, you know, full uh, through the extension and then through an implement the ball to to really work on completing that push. Yeah. But then also just for a little bit of you know kind of motor pattern variability because obviously then you kind of have to recover into those first couple of steps sure. as well and being able to smoothly yep, transition you... into good ground contacts um for those yep. first couple of steps and then of course for contrast just to do that in a normal yep. kind of uh two-point start just to finish that that circuit so you know nothing rocket science or groundbreaking there but just you mm-hmm. know we're talking my own personal experience you know two things that i've done it's like hey this passes the eye test as far as like yeah you know, eliciting mechanical improvements that that we want from an acceleration standpoint so yeah absolutely so i feel very vindicated right now 
because <laughs> that's the, the exact complex I used to use like towards my time, the end of my time coaching. I'll also add just like a little quick one that um, in that in that complex. So one that I used that I really liked was PVC pipe on the back for their unloaded Interesting. Uh, acceleration yep. start because so we'd go hill or incline sprint med ball acceleration like 10 15 yards with a stick on their back it's similar like what you should talk about with the med ball their strike ground contact uh positioning has to be on point because you don't have your arms to help you balance yeah so if you're you're over striding or if you're hitting out in front of you you're not gonna accomplish your task so that's another one just for, for people that i thought was really really good and got really good feedback on and then saw similar things to you as I'm seeing the things I want to see from the eye test that this passes. So all awesome stuff. Ken, this has been amazing. Oh, it's so, fine. I feel like you know, oh, man. just talk on a fair yeah. talk shop and record yeah. great, great Ken, questions and great talking yeah. points. And yeah, it's always a pleasure for sure. So. so Ken, you know, what else is going on as we wrap up here? Anything else you want to share with the listeners? And then where can they find you? Yeah. So, um, you know, online or social media, I'm at Ken Clark speed. That's both for, um, both for Twitter and for Instagram. Uh, my, my website is kenclarkspeed.com. And then, you know, I'm at Westchester university in suburban Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. United States. Um, one thing I did want to mention is in the post pandemic era, our graduate program, our master's degree in exercise science has, uh, transitioned into like a remote online hybrid program, um, uh, which is nice in the sense that we can now take on students nationally and globally, whereas uh, before we we couldn't. So we have a bunch of master's students in our in our program uh, at all times. I typically mentor mm-hmm. anywhere between two to four graduate students at a given time. Right now, I've got four. Um, I'll be taking on you know a new new cycle. So if you're interested in you know Westchester University um, exercise science, a master's degree uh, with a concentration in sports performance, and especially if you're interested in researching sprint mechanics. Um, you know, from an yeah. academic standpoint, please, please look me up. We've got some really cool options right now that are available. So, Ken, Ken, you're you're making me want to get another master's degree. <laughs> I don't know if you want to go through all that, no. but but yeah, it's it's a cool <laughs> program to be a part of. So. Awesome, awesome, great, Ken. Well, thanks again for your time today, and uh, yeah, hopefully we can get you on in future episodes. And uh, absolutely, uh, great questions. Be happy to come back on, and uh, yeah, thanks again for the opportunity to chat. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.